0: My name is Colleen Horonchek, and I'm a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, and very excited to be hosting this conversation today. Before I had kids, I didn't really think that much about the ins and outs of education. But then I learned about something called tax credit scholarships when my oldest was getting ready for kindergarten, and they enabled us to send her to a small Catholic school after a few years of that, we began homeschooling, and that's when he really got a sense for all the possibilities that we have here in education today. So I was lucky to live in an area where people who had gone before me in homeschooling had created homeschool co-ops and hybrid schools that met in person sometimes and at home other days. And so we were able to take advantage of these opportunities and have access to a lot more classes than we otherwise would have and meet fellow homeschoolers and it really added a lot of depth to our experiences. So I really admire the people that went out and created these things. And just like our, our panelists here today who have done that in their communities, they saw a need and they stepped up to uh, fulfill that need. So when I first came to Cato about two and a half years ago, I started a blog series called The Friday Feature where I profile different micro schools and hybrid schools and programs and policies that help families access these options. And my goal with this is to let people know what's all is out there. Um, I think COVID really did a lot in that regard because it gave parents more of an insight into what their kids were and sometimes were not learning. And a lot of times families got kind of disenchanted with their local schools. On the more positive side, it also gave people a better sense of the different options that are available for us today. And I think that's really spurred a lot of these changes. I think a lot of people are kind of like me and that until you need these things, you don't think about it. You don't understand what's out there. And with, with the Friday feature, that's one of the things that, that I'm trying to help them see. So it's not just when you're in this kind of moment of desperation. And also for for public school teachers or any teachers, a lot of times the things that seem to bother them are the red tape and the bureaucracy and lack of autonomy. And so we are able to let them see that there is another way. And we'll hear a lot about that in our conversation today. So I think it's going to be really great and going to give us all a better sense of what's out there and what's possible. It was actually my boss, Neil McCluskey, who's the director of Center for Educational Freedom, who suggested last fall that we do this, and he called it a uh, Friday feature school fair. And so I, I think that's kind of what it's going to be, where everybody's going to get a chance. It's one thing to read about them, but to hear it in their own, in their own words, telling about it, and more importantly, the chance to ask questions. So if you're somebody who is considering doing something like this, whether it's starting your own, sending your kids to something, I think you'll get a lot out of the conversation today. Um, we'll be having questions from the audience here in person and online. You can submit questions on the event webpage, or Facebook, YouTube, and X or Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. So for simplicity, I'm going to be saying schools a lot, even though not all these are actually schools. And I'm going to jump right in and start with Amy Maratz who is founder of the Awakening Spirit Homeschool Collaborative in Minnesota, which is the oldest school in the group.
1: And Amy, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to start Awakening Spirit? Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for having me on this panel today. This is a very exciting opportunity to um, to further the knowledge of, of micro microschools and alternative education. Uh, I received my a bachelor degree from St. Olaf College, and I went to Bethel University for my master's of education. And I taught in the public school system for a number of years. Um, When it came time to have my family, I decided that I needed to be the main teacher for my children. And so I was at home with them. And as I was homeschooling them, I had people approach me and say, hey, would you ever do this for somebody else, um, which led me to start thinking about it. And I developed an in-home program that started off in the lower level of my family home in Woodbury, Minnesota. We have since expanded to a 15-acre property. Um, you want to, This is probably a good time to play the little video that we have that just has some clips of, of what a day in our school looks like, uh, Awakening Spirit, Homeschool Collaborative, helps families with gifted and highly sensitive children uh, joyfully learn and live and um, explore the possibilities that are out there for them. So we're a nature-based school. We have animals on property. The kids have their reading and math every day prescriptively, and it's all done um, very independent, independent learning plan wise, but then they have a period of the day that's our passion projects, which is where they get to pursue something that they're really interested in. And myself and my other teachers act as guides, kind of curating that process for them. Um, Yeah, that's, that's a little bit about who we are and what we do. We have a forest school component and we travel, we do road school. So three times a year, the whole school goes on break and select groups of kids who opt in, um, travel together. So we do place-based education. We studied geology and we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas and and mined for crystals and got our hands into that red clay and really cemented that learning.
0: That is awesome. I'm very jealous of the road schooling, especially, (laughs) I have to admit. Now, um, Sharon Massanelli, founder of St. John the Baptist Hybrid in Georgia is uh, another one that started several years ago pre-COVID and if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and
2: what led you to start your your hybrid school Um, so background uh, i am a physician associate uh, in cardiology and i have been for 20 years Uh, so i work in the hospital and uh, my children were uh, homeschooled in a hybrid program for about seven years and i was driving a very long distance to get to these other programs and i finally decided it was time to start something a little bit closer to where we lived Um, it was just a group of families who all had said yes we need a good option for our families in this area and i had enough families who were interested And so we said, let's go ahead and do this. And we started the program with about 50 students the first year renting out of a church. And then um, we had COVID hit at that time. And it became a very popular option for us. We had a wait list the second year because we were open when the public schools were not. And so we grew Uh, And then by the third and fourth year, um, we had gotten to 120 students. We are a hybrid that offers kindergarten through 12th grade. We have uniforms. um, We're in very traditional-looking classrooms. It's just economical for uh, particularly larger families who may want to be more highly involved in their child's education. Um, rather than sending them five days a week and wondering, okay, what did you talk about today in language arts or what did you do today in math? Um, The parent is taking over on those other days of the week. So our mission is to have um, a excellent education and we are accredited. So we do provide a Georgia high school diploma. Our location is in Kennesaw, Georgia, So we offer a full Georgia high school diploma to our students. You can see this was our high school graduating class um, last year. And we offer um, high-level education, and we partner with the parents, and that is our mission. Um, And we have, as I said, about 120 students now in K through 12th grade. Um, And we do science experiments. These are all things that homeschool families would not normally have access to doing these things at home by themselves. Um, So our students get to be involved in a classroom environment, in a very traditional classroom environment, um, and still have the same opportunities to homeschool and spend time with their families. And that is one of the things that our families really enjoy about our program.
0: And that's it. That's fabulous, yeah. The hybrid options definitely saved me as a homeschooler, especially, like you said, with science and languages and things like that. Um, For anyone who is interested in hybrid schools in Kennesaw, right where you're located there, Kennesaw State University actually has a hybrid school conference in April, and it's definitely worth checking out. So, So I think several of us will be there this year. So Dominique Burgess, founder of Burbrella Learning Academy in North Carolina. Now, you had started a bit of outreach before COVID, but then it was really COVID that kind of launched you into the micro school space. And, and then the, um, the new universal voucher is helping you, too. So can you tell us your background and how you, how you got here
3: and of course. First, thank you for having me. So um, I started Barbella in the midst of COVID. Uh, this is my 15th year in education. And I felt as an educator, it was my duty to support parents throughout COVID. So I created a Facebook group for parents and educators to come together and collaborate. And um, didn't think that was going to like m- help me make a school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it did show me the needs of families and educators at one of the most uh, vulnerable times in our world. And And what I started to do was to use what I was seeing in the group to create things that parents were looking for. So we started with just offering like some socialization classes during COVID for homeschoolers or families that were new to homeschooling because of COVID. And um, what we found were that kids were happy. They were excited to see each other's faces. Parents were excited because they were building community. So we really leveraged that as an opportunity to expand. And we created an online school in the midst of COVID that is now serviced in 18 states. Um, We have very determined and adamant parents who felt like our online school needed to be showcased in person. So they really um, pushed me to open an in person school after I said no several times. Um, But I decided to move forward with it because I saw there was a need based off of my previous experiences in traditional school settings. So when we opened up our first in-person location in Burlington, North Carolina, I knew that I wanted to take a non-traditional approach to education and that's when micro schools were bought into my world. Um, And one of the things that I love about being able to operate a micro school is that you can do something different without anybody questioning why you're doing it. Um, So our, our mission is really rooted in the community and one of the things that I realized is that malls are one of the most um, amazing spaces for families to come together and build community. So we put our first micro school in an old Foot Locker sneaker store in the midst of a mall, um, one to revitalize the community and the mall aspect but also to show people that education can happen anywhere. So we are in um, almost our full first year, I just realized that, um, of our first in-person micro school which has grown tremendously and now we're just taking it one day at a time and looking to continuously grow. Um, North Carolina is like you mentioned a school choice state so that provides opportunity for families to use esa funding or opportunity scholarships because we are a licensed private school so that has been wonderful to be able to support families from various income levels
0: absolutely it's a very exciting time in education with the spread of school choice um north carolina one of 10 now states that have universal or nearly universal school choice and about six i think six of them are um ESA states, and so that gives parents the most flexibility, because beyond private school tuition, then they can use those funds for a wide variety of educational options, and we are very fortunate to have two founders here today with us who are from universal ESA states. So Eric Eisenbrae founded Eyes and Brain STEM Center in West Virginia, and my understanding is that it was really the universal ESA that enabled you to do that, so if you could share your story with us, that'd be great.
4: Yes, thank you. Um, so I was a public school teacher for 10 years teaching middle school science, so that's you know part of where my STEM focus is coming from. Um, but in my time as a public school teacher, I often felt like I would see things with students that I wanted to be able to help them with, wanted to be able to reach them for, uh, and I couldn't because I was dealing with groups of, you know, 28, 30 students at a time for 45 to an hour, and a school day and I just couldn't give the students the kind of attention that I knew they needed uh, to be able to reach the whole child. Um, So I hit a point where I realized that what I wanted to do, I could not do inside the public education system. So it just happened to be that I was retiring and COVID hit. So it kind of worked for me that there was, the world kind of went on pause and I had a chance to step back and kind of look at what do I want to do? I knew that education was my passion, and I wanted to make sure I found a way to keep working in education. Um, and in my research, in my journey, I found a group called Micro School Builders, and they helped kind of guide me down a path to get started. But there was this concern of being in a lower socioeconomic area uh, in West Virginia, where I'm at, that opening a micro school wouldn't be affordable to families. It wouldn't be something that would be viable for me. Um, because it it requires a good amount of funding to be able to have a school and be able to offer the materials and the supplies and the experience to students but it just so happened that at the point that uh 2022 i was working on launching my school the state passed our esa program which is called hope scholarship and with that passing into the state it really gave me the opportunity to say, okay, this is something I can do. This is a viable way of parents being able to sign their students up for the school and being able to have enough funding that they can cover what would be needed for tuition for the school to be able to run. We had a bit of a rough start because the Hope Scholarship got put on hold that first year, but luckily that got sorted out. And so this year I was able to start up with uh, seven students in the fall and we're just... The kids are so excited to have this space where they're able to really explore their passions. My big focus is on showing students that the science, the engineering, the technology, the math, it all comes into play in any interest they have, anything they do. It's all about that critical thinking uh, that is accessible because I constantly hear from other adults, other teachers, uh, that you know, they're looking to me to see how can I incorporate this STEM. And, and my idea is to try to get those students to realize that it is accessible and to give them the opportunities that they didn't have in the public schools or they wouldn't have necessarily be able to reach uh, as a homeschool student. So I'm just providing as many opportunities as I can, both through the micro school and as well as I offer after school opportunities to students that as well.
0: That's great. And can they use the ESA funding for the after school?
4: they can um currently it's a little bit harder because there is a requirement for families to have had their students in public school for 45 days uh, before they are able to then uh, pull out of the public schools and get the hope scholarship funding so students are still in public schools so they can attend my after-school programs uh, because of the way i schedule them They're not able to get those funds, and unfortunately a lot of the homeschool families currently aren't able to, too. Uh, But hopefully that's something that will be changing soon.
1: Right.
0: Excellent. And so, um, yeah, so that shows what the power of (coughs) these school choice programs and ESAs in particular in that they're enabling you to start something in your own town Then we have Jack Pennell Johnson over there on the end, who he actually went a step further even, having experience in the Baltimore area with charter schools, moved to Arizona for their universal ESA to start his micro school. So tell us about your journey and how you got to Arizona and what's going on there.
5: Thank you so much, Colleen. And thank you, Cato Institute, for hosting this important event. And so excited to hear about other people's projects and. Um, I've been, I have been I too have been in education for almost fifteen years this month, I think. Uh and uh my original uh journey after having a career in finance and politics and government uh uh policy, I decided to open a an all boys charter school in Baltimore. And uh I it was my first endeavor in that field and it was challenging and hard. Uh and uh but we opened that school in 2012, I believe, uh, no, 2015. We were, we were authorized, and this is the big deal, we were authorized by government authorities to open a school uh, after lots of work, lots of expenditure of funds and development of boards and, and so on. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine said to me, um, about two years ago, he says, have you ever thought about opening a, a micro school? I knew nothing. I even didn't see the word or know the word micro school. I said, what are you talking about? He says, look at this school in Colorado and another school in Florida. And I called those people and talked to them about micro schools. And they were in, in I would call, permissionless environments to start schools. And I like the word permissionless because I lived in a world as a charter school where we was constantly had an oppressive authorizer who, who, who examined every single move I made. Even though we were outperforming the district, it, was, it almost became a threat to the school district for us to be as good as we were. I didn't understand that until 10 years later into a charter school. And, um, and so I, I, I made plans to go to Florida and to go to Arizona and talk to people on the ground about how ESAs work. ESAs are Empowerment Savings Accounts. We don't call them vouchers in Phoenix. We call them uh, funds that parents can use to choose the school of their choice. Uh, and it, it's a very good system for me, for us. And literally, we started our school uh, in. Uh, my first task was to find real estate and uh, I've been on the real estate hunt for years for a charter school for 300, 400 people. I was just looking for space for ten, and and we found a great, a, a, a great landlord in an athletic facility for youth for basketball and that helps us be a, sports fo- a sports-focused school. We see a lot of traffic of families. Uh, there's a large homeschooling uh, environment in, in, in Phoenix. And it helped me also think about how could we create, my previous school in Baltimore was a school where it was 90, 98% African-American, 70% of children living in poverty. And I, didn't, I, I stepped away from that vision of education and seeing that, how can we get children of all backgrounds to attend school together? And so our focus has been social economic diversity And we have that, we have a third high income, a third middle income, and a third low income families. And we're able to do that with ESA funding in a very unique way. Uh, I can get into the finances of that. But uh, we started our school this past fall, all boys, Christian school, um, uh, flexibility for homeschooling families and for families who want a full-time school experience. Uh, And we have a half and half of that. And we've tripled the size of our school in the first four months. And we've also have 100% attendance to school since the day we started. So I mean, I'm, and every day is an experiment. This is our pilot year, and we hope to have uh, our first full pledge school uh, next year. But in this pilot experience, we're experimenting with uh, alternatives to traditional education to not have a teacher standing in front of the room with a chalkboard with 30 kids and we're spending all that time and getting kids quiet and moving from one room to another we're all in a 800 square foot space we have we just bought a new uh, beanie bag for the boys want to be on the floor more than they want to be at a desk and they can take their shoes off I'm not i I'm not fussing with them about their uniforms, I'm not fussing with them about was homework done last night or not. We we are experimenting in all ways and there's no one saying, Jack, you can't do that. Or Jack, why are you doing that? Is, uh, we are doing this in collaboration with families and it's just it feels like fresh air and freedom. Oh yeah.
0: Right. yeah that's I commonly hear that about the, the attendance, the schools of choice tend to not have attendance issues in the same way. And just that ability to experiment and see what works for the kids in your school. And maybe it wouldn't work for the kids in the school next door, but that's the beauty of choice, I think, is it yeah. gives people all these different options. So now we have kind of gotten the overview. If at any point anyone has a question who's here in the audience, feel free to raise your hand and we will have people coming around with microphones. And I'm also getting some online here. So I'm going to start online because these came in a little bit earlier. And I've got a question from Latrice Farmer, and she asks, or he, I think she, sorry, what are the most important things to consider for parents looking to transition into homeschooling? And so maybe Sharon or Amy, would you like to take this?
2: Because you started out as homeschoolers. Um, So is the question to go to homeschooling just pure homeschooling or in a system, because I can, I can definitely respond about a system like ours where it's a hybrid homeschooling. If you're gonna go straight from public or private to pure homeschooling, that's a, a little bit of a different thing. But um, for us families that are transitioning from a full-time public or private school and then they come to our program where they're only at school two to three days a week. Uh, it, um, the important things that I would think for a parent to know is that you do have to be all on duty. It is not something where you can just throw the books at the child and say, okay, do your work. Uh, It is actually a lot of work on the parents. Uh, Whoever is home and homeschooling the child must be fully in on their job of homeschooling. Uh, It is hard work. Um, It's very rewarding work, don't get me wrong, but it is not an easy task and it takes a lot of time getting used to how you homeschool your child and your child's temperament and having a schedule or not having a schedule. Uh, There are things that may work for one child that don't work for the next child. And so you have to figure that out. And the only way to do it is just to do it and then make sure you're uh, adjusting as needed. If you started with a schedule, then it's not working, then switch to something else, say, OK, let's, let's go to a reward system or something like that. Um, delight-directed learning is the best. So if they're really and truly into what they're learning, um, it's going to be easy. It, it should be easy. But if it's things that they aren't necessarily enjoying, uh, if it's math and they just don't like math, but everyone's going to have to do math at some point, then you're going to have to find that method, being at home with your child, to get them to do the stuff that is necessary. Um, And that is one of the challenges of being a homeschool parent. Um, And it's a little bit harder being in a hybrid system because as a homeschool parent, you you can slow the pace. You can say, "Okay, so you didn't get those pages done today. That's okay. We'll do those tomorrow. But if you're in a hybrid setting, Everyone's expected usually to be on the same page, so you have to keep up the pace in a hybrid, or at least in our hybrid. That's how how we um, function. We have everybody working at the same pace, so it's a little bit more challenging uh, to be a hybrid homeschool parent because you're taking over as if a teacher were there in a classroom, and you're doing that work with your child, and your child is knows you a little bit more maybe than their teacher and they're a little bit more defiant at times and so you you have to figure out, okay, how can we do this? How can we make sure that you're getting your work done? Um and finding what their trigger is, like how what makes them happy and makes them um have fun with their work. Yeah. So it's a little bit challenging. I
1: would so. say give yourself grace and give your children grace. Because whenever you're transitioning from one environment to the next, um, there's a just a rule of thumb that we say it takes like a month per year of school that the kids were in a traditional system in order to relax and to have their amygdalas calm down and be able to feel safe and able to learn. Because that's the number one thing is if they have a warm, caring environment, their bodies are going to calm down. Their minds are going to calm down. They're going to be able to learn. And my my um, ideal family, ideal student in the in the business training that we uh, that we both have gone through um, are families with. Uh, gifted and highly sensitive kids. So I'm speaking specifically for the kids who um, a traditional environment did not work for because they were in that flight, fight, or fear mode when they're in a crowded environment with the lights on them and the lockers slamming and the bells ringing and they have a time limit and they can't get their test done in time. Um, So know your child. Take some time to, to really find out What makes them tick? What drives them? And then do your research on the environment that you're going to be putting them into. If it's fully homeschooled, you have all of the control in the world, and you have the ability and flexibility to be able to experiment. Um, But go into the schools that you are looking at, if it's a micro school or a hybrid, and make sure that it feels good and it resonates.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add um, de-schooling is what we call that. the month thing homeschooling doesn't have to look like school at home. So I think a lot of times, especially former teachers, when they start homeschooling, they think they have to replicate what they knew in the classroom. And that's definitely not the case. And in fact, to me, not looking like school is kind of part of the point of it. So yeah, don't feel pressure to look like any one model. And even you'll see here, very different models here There's not really one way to do it, and it it does. It just takes some experimentation. Um, I think I saw a hand up. Okay, Kayla, can you?
6: Uh, Mark Lerner, I just think uh, Andrew Colson would have loved to hear this conversation. Um, For those of you who have ESAs in your state, I'd love to hear how they work.
5: I'll start it. That's OK, because we were the first. so <laughs> uh, They're really very simple. Uh, a, a parent has to if they're homeschooling, they have access to ESA funding. Uh, if they are not homeschooling and their kids are in public schools, they have to de-enroll from a public school in order to become in, in order to get into the ESA system. And so there are ESA vendors which we're one, we're a school vendor. There are other vendors. You can be a tutor, an independent tutor. You can be teaching archery. You can do equestrian arts and all those. And the families, uh, they experimented initially with giving every family a a debit card. Uh, That was $7,500 on average on the debit card. That didn't work out too well. Uh, And now it's a system where uh, we invoice the families for tuition, and then that's put into a system. is reviewed very quickly. Very, I've never received money from a government institution as quickly as we're doing in, 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 in Arizona, and that's a good thing. Uh, and uh, and that, that's approved because that family's been approved for a certain amount of e- ESA funds. So it's like a, it's like a checkbook. It's like an open checkbook, but with some, some guardrails around it.
0: Eric, is it any different in West Virginia?
4: So uh, as I mentioned, one of our things is that there is a requirement for students to have at least been enrolled for 45 days in a public school. Uh, The one exception is students that would be starting into kindergarten. Uh, Those students are able to apply before they start into a public kindergarten. Uh, There's an enrollment process that parents have to go through. They have to show that they're living in West Virginia. Um, They have to provide proof of the age of the student, and then if they need to have met those 45-day requirement, they have to provide evidence of having done that. Then once they're approved for the ESA at that point, then they would contact their school board and let them know that they're planning on withdrawing their student to use HOPE scholarship funds uh, to apply to either homeschooling or microschooling or uh, possibly a private school. Um, And the uh, funds then on our end, Uh, as a micro school, they have a parent portal that they go into, um, and they're able to say, I'm going to spend this portion of the funds towards whatever choices, and it could be the micro school. So in my case, parents will go in, they get two payouts during the year, one in the start of the fall and one at January, and they apply their funds towards the tuition for the school, and then I'm able to go in on my side and accept those funds. Uh, It works a little bit different for the private schools, um, but generally, it's same idea for the parents. There's a, there's a parent portal, and they can only make purchases from that. So there's some control still in there for, for where these funds are going.
5: And a global statement is that it's universal, meaning that every family, regardless of income, can have access to ESAs. hmm
3: um, in North Carolina, it's somewhat similar, but different. Uh, ESA is currently only for students who have learning disabilities, however, the Opportunity Scholarship is an opportunity for parents to apply, um, those universal funds towards tuition. But, um, we have to be a licensed private school in order to operate and receive those opportunity scholarships, which is why our micro school went forward with being able to, uh, become a licensed private school, so we're able to accept both. We service students who are, uh, neurodiverse. Um, autistic students who have dyslexic needs so it allows for us to be able to take those ESA funds for those students.
0: Just for clarity because I think a lot of times we throw these terms around so school choice is kind of an umbrella for a lot of different scholarship programs that are out there that can help they take typically take state funds and can be used for a variety of educational options. The voucher, the Opportunity Scholarship is a voucher, so it can only be used at a private school, whereas the ESAs, the Education Scholarship Accounts that we're talking about, are more flexible and can be used at a variety, you know, private school tuition or whatever other things are prescribed in the law. So a lot more flexibility with that.
7: Oh, they've got a microphone coming. Hang on one sec. Thank you. Very interesting, Lou Gagliano. Will this model work? in your opinion, in inner city where the dynamics are somewhat different, many of your locations are not necessarily inner city, although your Baltimore experience certainly Mm -hmm. qualifies. But my curiosity is given some of the social parental issues in inner cities, in your opinion, could this work in inner city environments?
0: So I purposely have a panel that has a wide variety of locations and experiences and backgrounds so we can answer questions like that. And I mean, I think that that shows that the answer is yes. I mean, Jack, you've gone from Baltimore to
5: Phoenix. Right. I, I always, you know, I, I have a different frame framework for, I think, what your question is. Um, So I've been in inner city Baltimore, which, you know, has has the worst outcomes by every single measure, particularly for boys. Uh, And now I'm in Arizona, uh, which in Phoenix, which is, on the face of it, there is no concentrated poverty in Phoenix. There's not a neighborhood you can go down and say, all people, low income people live in this neighborhood. I've not been able to find it. And it's a unique thing. And it's a gift for me because I have an intentional desire to see children of all races and all colors and all economic backgrounds and families to go to school together. That is my highest priority because we have resegregated our charter schools are guilty of this, of resegregating our schools. And so children are growing up not knowing people of another race, of another faith, of another economic class. And I think education in the private and public sector has to do a better job of that. I will say to the, the essence of your question: I have learned, and I have a very diverse student body. I have three uh, children of—I mean, I have children. Half of, half the kids are of a color, and half of them are are Caucasian. Uh, I don't see any difference in home upbringing. I have a a kid who's been homeschooled uh, who does not look like me. He's nine years old, and he can't read. And uh, and that's an eye opener for me because you would think people with wealth would be teaching their children to read, that's not happening, because and for, for 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 a variety of reasons this boy can't read, he's very articulate in many other ways, so I you know these kind of scourges that we think were happening, in urban settings are, are are pre- are prevalent in other settings too. All families, many families are struggling with raising and, and educating boys. And we know that men are in trouble with the outcomes in terms of going to college, in terms of mental health issues. That is a, uh, um, and a, a universal problem that we in this country are dealing with. And so that's, a, that's, the, that's the platform that I'm dealing on. So I hope that addresses part of your question.
0: We've got another one here.
4: I'm just, you're you're talking earlier
5: about the mathematics issues. I'm trying to find out if any of you, are the Khan Academy videos still valuable in teaching the math? I've heard about them, and they were pretty effective at teaching the math uh, to students who had difficulty learning otherwise. I just heard of, are they still, use them? Are they still valuable? I've not heard about them for years, but I've, you know, I'm just just wondering. Thank you. (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, I have personally assigned Khan Academy videos as extra credit when, uh, the system that where you were currently teaching doesn't appear to be, uh, what the student feels it, They're not, they're just not getting it. The Khan Academy videos are a great supplement. Um, we don't use them as our primary, uh, method, but, Yes, we like Khan Academy videos, uh, definitely. So
1: we use the Khan Academy kids videos for our younger set. We're very thankful for those.
0: My kids found the SAT prep through Khan Academy to be helpful because it's linked to the College Board, and so your SAT results go into Khan Academy, and somehow it helps figure out a plan for you to, you know, beef up the areas that you were weak.
5: So. And I, I, we have a very different experience. It's, uh, we're self-paced learning, and so we're using uh, a lot of uh, computer-assisted programs that are out there. There's, uh, the, the quality of educational training online has, has improved tremendously. And Khan Academy is not the only. We use, actually, something called Beast Academy with, with our, our, our boys. And, and because we're self-paced, we find out whatever works well is uh, in terms of assisting us in side-by-side tutoring. Like I said, we don't have a teacher standing at a board uh, educating our kids. We're self-paced, moving the boys along their own learning plan. And so we use a variety of problems, and we're not uh, a variety of programs, and we're not using Khan Academy because many boys find that too slow and boring. Maybe no, no offense to Khan Academy. <laughs> no. you know. I know it's loved, but, you know, we have to... We're we now are in a wide open territory where we can explore the ways that kids learn best and, and put tools in front of them to learn the best.
2: Yeah. Yes, I agree. Adaptive uh, programs are, are great and wonderful. We use Alex uh, yeah. for math also as a supplement, and it is adaptive to the child, which I think is a very uh, important piece to making sure your child doesn't have gaps in knowledge.
0: We'll do one more in person, then I've got to jump online for a couple.
2: Hi, Andrew Sachs, Number Learning, uh, Global Social Learning Network, Kids Trade Learning, and set of likes. Kudos for what you're all doing. Thank you very much for paving a pathway for so many others.
5: Any thoughts on how we get more acceptance of these alternative
6: education methods into, this, into the mainstream? I know we had a bump up with COVID, and then it's kind of tapering off right now. Uh, any thoughts on that?
0: i I think just as more people get exposed to it that helps and the growth of school choice and the growth of schools like this are helping so any specific things anyone
3: yeah i'll say um definitely through school choice and the education of school choice not just from the educational perspective but from the parent perspective i'll also add um we're in a very important uh time in education And I think until we see education as a continuum, not just K-12, but K all the way through college, um, this whole idea of the movement and the acceptance would change. So when we have a School of Education, for an example, welcoming educational entrepreneurship in their programs, um, School of Education having people like us as visiting professors to not just educate them on what we're doing, but to empower educators to want to make change and be a part of this movement and have it continue.
4: I think uh, parent education is probably one of the biggest things. We have Hope Scholarship in West Virginia, uh, but there's still a lot of families that just aren't aware of it. Um, So as I run these after-school programs, it's one of the opportunities where I've had a chance to connect with families, connect with parents, let them know that there are these options out there. Uh, A lot of them will come in not even knowing that I'm running a school and they'll be surprised to find out about it, and then they start to kind of get interested in it, realizing that there are options for students. Uh, Parents are so used to, I put my student in the public school, Uh, education looks this certain way, this is what I expect. Uh, You know, it kind of plays into that de-schooling that students have to go through, having been a public education teacher, I found that I had to de-school myself when I stepped out of the classroom. I have a couple kids of my own, so I got a little bit of time to kind of experiment on them uh, before we moved into the micro school. But I had to de-school myself. I had to realize that it doesn't have to be all the subjects broken up and we have to hit on these certain things in a certain amount of time. Um, And really the parents that I have now, the big thing for them is that they're seeing just how happy their students can be in a different environment where they have more freedom where they have more choice where the education is tailored to them and getting more parents the opportunity to see that these options can exist for them or they can possibly bring their students home and do the same thing for them uh, with this the new technology out there the fact that we have so many choices and just the math curriculum as was spoken about i think that really it's just making parents aware that there are choices is the biggest thing for moving this forward
0: I've gotten a few questions online dealing with teachers, so I'm going to kind of combine them. How do you recruit teachers, and are you able to pay yourselves, them, kind of commiserate with what you were making if you were a former public school teacher? Obviously, you don't have to get into super personal levels of your income questions, but maybe, Dominique, let's start with you because you're a little bit more expansive, I think, than the others.
3: Um, So for me, uh, personally, our model in recruiting teachers looks a little bit different. Um, I'm very collaborative with parents. So we try to encourage and promote parents being educators in our classrooms and working alongside previous educators who have experience. Um, One, it goes back to our mission of being collaborative within the community, but it also empowers parents to pay attention to what's happening in education. As far as um, the ranges of paying teachers, what we try to look at is, one, what, depending on the state that you're in, of course, um, what are the going rates for teacher salary? Of course, we want to stand out versus the Public school setting or the charter schools. So, we try to add in a lot of things like professional development, um, opportunities for them to bring their children to work with them so they don't have to worry about childcare. So, thinking about things that will be barriers for teachers in the traditional setting, we use that as an opportunity to get teachers excited about wanting to work for us.
0: And then, Sharon, you've got part time teachers, so it's a little bit different there. Can you talk about that a little?
3: Yes.
2: Um, and like Dominique, we allow our teachers to bring their children to school. We even have a nursery, um, so that they don't have to pay for a daycare, um, while they're teaching. Uh, we do have some parents that are teachers in our program, but it is not the majority at all. So we kind of go the traditional route, finding teachers, putting out ads, um, advertising in either our church bulletin, things like that. So we, um, we, we are looking for more traditional teachers that are part-time, which can be challenging. Uh, a lot of them are either retired and then came back because they wanted a part-time job or they're younger and they've got little ones and they want to spend more time at home with their little ones. Um, it is a unique group of teachers that we're looking for to be working only part-time. So it, it requires a little bit more uh, advertising to find those unique teachers Um, but we have professional development also uh, we found that as the program grew our teachers needed more of that support so we have a bigger support system for our teachers now than than we did in our first year because it was it was needed so uh, we have we're out there we're advertising indeed ads Um, newspaper things like that to to be able to find these teachers Um, but word of mouth is a really big one because we have teachers that refer other teachers uh, who may be in a similar situation to them and looking for part-time.
5: So uh, we have a unique perspective I've uh, uh, I thought that we could have uh, traditional teachers thrive in a small scale Safe pace, mastery based environment. Uh, but I found that many teachers that I initially interviewed were very institutionalized to one form of, of teaching, which is standing in front of a chalkboard, having lesson plans, teaching 30 kids at the same pace. And none of them uh, would thrive in our current environment. Uh, I have a tutor, uh, a young man who uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to him Tyler Buckland, who's been an amazing, had never taught in a classroom, but it's been amazing what I envision a side-by-side tutor learning at the same time that our kids are learning. So we went to the aquarium, uh, and we do uh, expeditions every week. We went to the aquarium, and I fell in love with uh, jellyfish. And so we came back, and we talked about what was our favorite fish we saw. Let's explore more about what they are. And so I'm learning alongside of them, uh, which is a, a, just a refreshing approach. And Tyler is able to, we have a math workshop in the morning. We have a reading and writing workshop. Uh, and it is side by side on the floor or, 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 or at the table learning with our kids using various tools and the internet and research. And we have guest visitors that come in and talk. and about various topics. And so uh, I'm not looking any longer for a traditional teacher. I'm looking at how we can develop this tutor, how we can can find 10 tilers and develop them into great teachers in our setting.
0: Absolutely. I think I saw another hand up. Go ahead.
7: We know socialization is very important. Do you collaborate with the public schools, the traditional schools, for things maybe like sports or proms and things like that so children can have more of a diverse traditional experience?
3: Great question. Um, I'll answer that. So, we had a situation um, in Burlington, North Carolina, where our public schools had a mold situation and they had to push the school year back. Um, as the new micro school in the community we decided to push our school year back to be able to take those students in so -hmm. we extended our summer camp to welcome public school families into our space as opportunity one for them to do something different but also to support our public schools Um, we do a lot of collaborative partnerships within the community that welcomes public school families to come in Um, I have a very wonderful relationship with the public school where I actually called them and was like hey where can I get cheap computers Um, and they gave me a great resource so I think um, we're, we're not trying to educate in isolation, we're trying to do it collaboratively, like you said, um, to support socialization for all kids because education doesn't have a one-size-fit-all model. So um, we want people to see us as collaborators, not people who are trying to take over education and do something different or go against the public school setting.
4: Yeah, I would like to add to that. I'd say that one of my goals has been not to alienate the public schools as I started this program. Um, and in fact, I've had the public schools reach out to me to help them with some of their STEM programs outside of the school hours. Um, this past summer, I worked uh, a day at one of the public schools. That were, they were running a summer camp. Uh, I recently had another public school reach out to me, hoping I would be able to help them with an after-school program they were doing. Um, Right now my schedule is very full because I am running Lego robotics programs for K all the way through 8th grade, as well as a rocketry program that's aimed at middle to high school students. Um, But all those programs I keep open to all students, whether they be part of the micro school, part of homeschooling, part of the public schools, because the goal is to really help students. And to be able to do that, we have to help students from all backgrounds, I believe.
1: Um, In Minnesota... The school districts are actually wonderful. In our, um, my model, all of our families are homeschooling with the state. Um, and the way that the paperwork reads is primary educator are as the family, and then I'm listed as a secondary educator. And since a lot of our families attend two to four days a week, um, the kids are able to opt into wrestling or theater or things with the public school system. That's a gr- it's amazing. I'm very, very thankful for it.
2: We have the same thing. Um, Our families are considered homeschoolers in the state of Georgia, and they can participate in public school sports. Um, And in order to do that, they have to take at least one uh, public school class online. And we highly encourage our families to go out into the community, play community sports. We don't want them in a bubble. Uh, We want to be always collaborating. Um, I am also, um, our Our program is a Vela recipient. And so we find ways to reach out to other uh, Vela programs and collaborate with them. We have dances with another um, hybrid program. It's just, it's in the best interest of everyone to collaborate as much as possible. We do not want to alienate the public schools or even the private schools. Um, It is a, it is a effort um, from multiple angles To educate our children and to have them in the real world setting.
0: Okay, so I've got a couple questions. I'm going to go on the other online so the online people don't get mad at me. Um, A couple questions on finances. So, especially in a school without ESAs or any other universal choice programs, how do you handle finances, especially in those early stages? So, Amy, do you want to start there?
1: Sure. So I funded my school to start with. Um, It was a a family investment and a decision. I had two young children at the time, and I knew I needed to build a program for them. Um, After that, so Eric and I have both gone through the Micro School Builders workshop program, and we actually both coach for Micro School Builders. We coach people to, when they're doing their budget, make sure that you... um, you value yourself and your your school program and you set the tuition high but just wait so that you can slide it for families who need help because if you have one or two families who don't blink an eye at a higher tuition, it enables, it enables us to cushion and build in scholarship programs. So I have students who uh, you know, come from hard backgrounds who are able to come to our school that they would not have been able to because we have that cushion built in. Right,
0: and then Sharon, you mentioned the Vela program. So there's programs like that, that do you wanna maybe give a little more details on that for people that are interested?
2: Um, Yes, we were uh, given a Vela grant for one year, which helped a lot of our families to get uh, their tuition subsidized. And um, in general, though, our tuition completely covers our operating costs. Uh, We're able to save money by renting uh, classrooms from a church, which has been an absolute blessing. Uh, We're also able to save money um, by the fact that we're only part-time, so our teachers only work part-time, our students only attend part-time, and all of the tuition goes directly into uh, paying our teachers and then paying the rent, Um, so it just, it works. We have some combined classrooms. Uh, In the beginning, very early on our first year, we did have a um, 5th, 6th, and 7th grade class combined, which was almost like a one-room schoolhouse, which is, is has great benefits. Um, we have progressed to have larger class sizes. Uh, the most important thing was we had to have a minimum of five students per classroom to be able to meet uh, the finances for each year. So, And that's Vela,
0: V-E-L-A, Education Fund, if anyone is listening and was interested.
3: And then Dominique, you were in the YAS Prize, right? Yes. Um, so I'll backtrack just a little bit. We received two grants from the Vela Education Fund and um, that second grant that we received was how we opened up our micro school, our in-person micro school. So that was a huge help with the, the startup costs and putting everything in place so we would later on be able to accept things like the ESA. And then also, once we had our school up and operational, we were able to apply for some education awards like the YAS Prize. And this year our school was awarded $200,000 as a semi-finalist for the Yes Prize. So there are so many opportunities um, from the financial aspect of starting your own type of educational program or institution that can support you. Right, and that's
0: YASS Prize. And um, kind of tied into this, Jack, we've got somebody asking, are you concerned about the regulations that come with an ESA? And since your school is a Christian school, I think a lot of times you know, when there's the religious component, people do have that fear. So what would you say about that?
5: There are no regulations for schools in Arizona. Okay.
0: So you're not worried? Zip. (laughs) Zero.
5: (laughs) And that could be a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But uh, uh, you can establish a a private school in Arizona. Um, uh, I've looked, I've talked to everyone, and there is very little regulation of uh, private schools. I, I hope, my hope, uh, my sincere hope is that as we multiply in micro schools and in independent schools in Arizona, that we will regulate ourselves uh, in, in areas that need to be regulated. Like, for instance, making sure that every person on your staff has uh, uh, cred- not credentials, but. Uh,
1: clearances.
5: Uh, what? Clearances. Clearances, yes. There's no obligation to for schools to have clearances. Uh, in, in Arizona. It's just something that we impose on ourselves. Um, but I, I I, just really hope, like other industries, that we begin to self-regulate ourselves in important areas that make a difference. And we've already, uh, I've already been invited and attended a, a gathering of educational leaders in, in Arizona, which would never have happened on the East Coast, mind you. I've only been in Arizona for less than a year, and I was invited to a table of people who were charter school leaders who were Superintendents of schools, and we spent a weekend together in the most beautiful part of Arizona. It's a beautiful state,
0: and you all Uh, survived.
5: And pardon?
0: And you all survived.
5: (laughs) Yeah, we all survived. I mean, it was like I I said. I said at the end of this, thirty people. I said, I've never seen the cross collaboration and work that people are doing, and openness. So, like, let's do this together. Let's figure this out together. So,
0: I do think it's common that the more. A state that's more regulatory is just gonna be more regulatory. The school choice isn't the driver of that no. historically, what we've seen. Mm-hmm. So, we have a question? Yep. Excuse me. Excuse
6: me. I will say thank you for um, all of you sharing um, your experiences. And I am enormously interested and impressed with micro schools in particular. I'm here in Washington, D.C., where we are extremely political. Um, but it's also very vibrant, a very vibrant and dynamic um, school market. And one of the things that probably harkens to the question that the gentleman in the front asked before, talk about parent engagement and the level of engagement a parent must bring uh, to be successful in an environment like this, where I think of the boys who I currently serve a school, much like the school Jack started in Baltimore, where we battle every day to get parents to remain academically engaged with what is going on at the school every day in a way that turns into the kinds of outcomes that we want for them. How would your schools work if families were less engaged?
1: Mine wouldn't work at all.
6: Mm -hmm. So we're
1: a homeschool collaborative. We have monthly family dinner nights. My guides are all parents who I, again, I prefer because I can train them in the ways that I think that they need to be guiding kids. Um, but no, mine is completely community-based, community and I, really for microschools to have a future, my community is gonna look completely different than a community located in New York City. And I think that we just have to let the market speak as far as everybody opens all these little schools and and the ones that are going to work for the kids and the families who need it are going to work?
3: I'll say parent engagement looks different for every child. So to answer that question, it goes back on the accountability of the school. How are you holding parents accountable to engage themselves? We have conversations with parents before they even enroll their child with us to let them know what we expect from them, um, which is a bit different from traditional settings. So when you become a part of this community, you know what we expect of you before we allow your child to be here. And I think also engaging them in those hard conversations. Um, Parents are. Parents become accountable when they want to or when they see the benefit of it. So if you know your child is going to reach this school's mission by the end of the year and you have an idea of what that might look like, you might be a little bit more motivated to get up in the morning. Um, we have parents who say, I would never wake up 6 o'clock in the morning to cut apples, but one of our teachers, Miss Wells, who's amazing, she makes sure parents are held accountable and they're up 6 o'clock in the morning cutting apples for whatever the activity is for that day because they see the power in what we're doing. So I think when we think about parents, we have to think about them as partners, not someone who we just expect to show up when it's time for the academic side of things, or when it's time to have those hard conversations, but have them show up to be a part of the educational perspective as a whole and watch how they change.
5: I, uh, I've i been on both sides of the fence that you're talking about, Sean, and thank you for being here. Um, I am looking at this a very different way. I think, uh, one, I think when a family is writing a check or involved with getting the check, they have a different approach to the education of their sons. I would say secondly is that we, we recruit families, not individual students. And Uh, And we're very clear in the conversation, the very first conversation, that we're in the trenches together, creating something new and unique. And I would say the third part of my vision is that I want every family to be mutually beneficial to all the other families, that we're all raising these boys together. And uh, someone initially asked me, a lot of people asked me initially, well, how do you do hybrid school? What about that parent that that needs to work on the day that they might be learning from home. And I said, well, I would hope that we've developed such a tight community that other families said, come over to our house. And that that is happening here. And so I think it's it's focusing on what kind of community are you building, and what is the purpose of that communication, which is the betterment of the community, the larger community in society through education. So it's a very different approach, I'm still in the, Mist of understanding why it's working, but right now, if we were to look at some other markers that you might be looking at, we have 150% participation by every single family. Like a kid can't come to school, mom's had an issue with her other children, another family says we'll pick them up.
0: So kind of along the same line, I've got a couple questions online asking about you know, if two parents work or it's a single parent, how can they do some sort of homeschooling option? And Sharon, I don't know if you've seen in your homeschooling community, any
2: families who are successfully doing that, I guess yourself included. Yes. Um, it's difficult if both parents are working full-time. Uh, we do have families, though, that their, their parents are working full-time. Um, they tend to be older. Uh, their students tend to be teenagers. So you can rely on them to get some things done before the parent gets home. But the beauty of homeschooling is it doesn't have to be 9 to 5. It can be done 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. It can be done on a Saturday. It can be done on a Sunday. So um, my husband, you know, he's always telling me like, why are the kids doing work on Saturday? Because they didn't do it on Friday (laughs) because they didn't get it done. And that's okay. Because if I have to work on a Saturday, then they're getting their schoolwork done with me on a different day. And that's okay. Um, so is it doable? Yes. It's very hard. I will say it's it's a little bit harder than if there's a committed parent at home all the time. Um, you have to find the schedule. You have to make it work. And you have to do some very unconventional hours. But it's doable, yes.
0: I think the hybrid aspect helps because then you have that external accountability, which at least we needed <laughs> for a lot of subjects. Yes.
5: The families like the flexibility. Yes. Uh, your, your son might be here on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but mom says, hey, we like to do a hike on Thursday. Can they come on Friday? Yes. Or my son's at home. Uh, he really wants to be, be with you guys this afternoon for sports. Can he come in? And so, uh, you know, our our three homeschool our homeschooling families are saying like we like the flexibility. When you when we ask for a favor, you say yes.
8: Thank you, uh, Jill Turgeon. Terrell, I I've been in the education policy world for about a decade. I've been in education for probably twenty years. I'm very envious of you all because right now, I am very actively working on getting ESAs um, through our General Assembly in Virginia, where I live. And we're not being successful. It's been very challenging. And so my question is more along the line of those of us who are here who do not have the legislative ability to engage in this type of choice, what are some of the things that you are seeing um, and primarily, I really think the key is, there was a question earlier about getting people kind of on the, on the train of, of, of educational choice. And it's all well and good to get the parents involved, but unless it, it changes legislatively, it's not going to get there. So one of our challenges is engaging communities that aren't typically um, excited about education choice. I'm just curious what your all's experience has been, if you've been on the legislative side, if you've seen things. I know in Arizona, I mean, you're seeing things all the time. West Virginia, I followed that very carefully. So what's some advice you can give those of us who are working really hard to get it in our state?
3: So I don't know if any of you were involved in any of the legislative efforts. Um, So (sighs) interesting. I'm trying to figure out how I should answer this. Um, What I would say is don't stop. Um, because people like you, um, made it, made the opportunity for people like us to be here, right? Um, especially in a state like North Carolina. I think also having people like us be a part of those conversations that you're trying to have with those legislators, um, especially in Virginia. There's some great things happening in Virginia. Um, invite them to visit some of those schools that are up and operational so they can see it. Um, I don't want to get too political, but I would say. We live in a world where we have to see it to believe it for it to happen, right? Um, And we are like standing proof that it's happening. So how do we build that community together to get those people to see there's more people out here like us, especially in Virginia, um, I'm highlighting that again for a reason, who are um, up and operational and doing this so they can start being comfortable with having those conversations, but also inviting us in to be a part of those conversations so we can speak to the benefits that that it's having for education. Education as a whole. Um, so I think just you know finding ways for us to collaborate. We service families in Virginia in our online school, and that is one of those places where we want to have a micro school, um, but have pushback for some of the reasons that you're fighting for. So I would say um, leverage a partnership with people like us to be a part of those conversations.
5: Yeah, <laughs> I would. I would also say this is a, a daring comment. It helps to be a red state, Uh, because uh, I I think education in this country has the access to quality education has become a question of blue and red. And I, I, I don't see the blue side as progressive in Arizona. I'll give you an example. Arizona has had open school enrollment for 20 years. You can attend any school you want in Arizona, knock on the door, and they will open the door for you if there's a seat. And when I discovered that, I said, that's a progressive policy that has stopped dead in the water in most Northeast schools and Midwestern schools. So I, I, I think uh, there are people, if you don't know them, in, in Arizona that are just like you and just like some of the people here who are who are parents already doing the work and they got politically busy and they knocked on doors and they, they, they had an, an audience that was willing to listen and believe that the school choice movement is something that needs to happen for all children everywhere. And I was on the ed reform side for a long time and never heard of school choice, never heard of ESAs until a very conservative red state friend of mine said, you ought to come to this side of the story. And so it is a political divide. It's like it's a political divide. But
8: how can we, how can, if I may, how can we bridge that? I mean,
5: I, it's a million dollar question. We've had
8: some success. I'm with Virginia
5: Education Opportunity Alliance. So we've, we've had some success we've There's had, a mic. Sorry.
8: We've had some success with that. But it, what what's so disheartening to me is it does become a political line. It should not be political. I mean, just abs- when you look at the benefits, it just shouldn't be. And so I think, I guess I'm a little Pollyanna. I just, I am mean, a little I,
5: Pollyanna too. You know? I, beat my head, I beat my head against the wall yeah. in Maryland for a decade. Yeah. There are people that I would go to politically and I'd say, why can't you support charter schools? And they said, we know our people want that, but the teachers unions down the street who are, who are, who are like in our office every day will kill us. It will kill my political career to support charter schools. It will double kill their political career to support ESAs. I don't wanna be political. I don't think. You're
3: right, you're
0: right.
5: Am I right? Yes, you are. Please help me out.
3: You are, you are.
0: And I think in a state like Virginia, I'm guessing it's a lot of rural Republicans who are actually stymieing you. And so I, I think we've got three states here that show you know, Arizona, West Virginia, and North Carolina all had rural Republicans who, who did support choice, and that's how they got it through. And you know, so, again, maybe showing the example of, of these states who have done it. And I, I'm from Pennsylvania, which is a, a purple state. And I, um, I wrote an article recently about we did just have a big school choice win in Pennsylvania where
3: Lifeline. the
0: Democrat... Lifetime failed, unfortunately, yeah, Lifeline. Um, But our tax credit scholarship got a big increase with a Democrat governor and a Democrat House and Republican Senate, and they were able to do it through the budget, so it can happen, but it's
5: And and, and in Arizona, we have a Democratic governor who's trying to kill ESAs. And when she came out with her bill to kill ESAs and also regulate private schools, in 24 hours, there were 20,000 names on a petition opposing that. So I don't know where the governor is coming from. i that she probably wants to be vice president. But I, you know, I, I, I think political power makes a difference and community power makes a difference. Would you agree?
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits of the universal programs is that there's just a broader constituency for it versus a more targeted one. You're not gonna have as many people saying, save our program, but what you're seeing in these states that are passing universal ones, then parents from all over the political spectrum are gonna be engaged in that battle. We saw that in Florida where um, you know, the Republican governor was not expected to win a few years ago, but he did, and they think it was mostly because the Democrat was saying he was going to get rid of the school choice program, and a lot of Democrat moms voted for, this is what they announced was, voted for the Republican governor because they wanted their program to stay.
7: So I see a hand over here. Hi, I'm uh, Clara Davilar, and I want to also share an applause for all of your amazing work, your innovation. Uh, I uh, st- have a startup called Scola Labs that develops technology for the ESA programs, uh, the data processing the workflow and the digital wallets. Uh, there are some existing companies that do that now, but I've been very much involved with the ESA programs. And my question, and I also want to applaud the school policy works, because all this is happening after 25 to 30 years of work trying to get to this stage. That really is uh, is critical. My question, um, and again, it's probably data related, um, do you all have? Um, Uh, are you keeping track of the data of the students, the process, the programs? Because I'm just curious, as these programs develop more fully, the data analytics that really show the progress and the impact on children, I think will be critical for these legislators to see that this is really working, this is really happening. I know all the policy people and the legislators that are trying to push it have suffered you know, to make this happen. But I think the more data that we put forward that it's happening, um, the better. We have a similar question online,
0: so I'm just going to jump in and so mm-hmm. we can kind of merge it, but asking about outcomes from students that have gone through programs like this. And I know some of them are too young to really have strong answers, but anyone want to jump in?
1: Um, as, as far as analytical data, we use a program online called MindPlay that allows us to really keep a close eye on, like it's, it's specifically for um, reading and language arts. Uh, but the question that always comes to my mind is how do you measure joy and how do you measure um, family success? And so having some sort of longitudinal study might be really, really beneficial. Um, and especially if it was something that could be given to schools across the United States and have it tracked, that would be a really exciting type of thing. Um, we've graduated, I've graduated eight kids through my program, and I think the the best um, kind of anecdotal uh, evidence I have are just my testimonies of families who, um, when their kids are transitioning to a traditional high school say, my daughter is secure in who she is, and she is loving school because she knows she's really good at biology. Um, so that's, that's the type of data that I'm collecting.
3: I think for us, from the academic perspective, um, the former traditional educator in me is always looking at the outcomes and the data. I'm a data person, um, so we use a lot of the traditional Um, standardized assessment, so like we use the Woodcock Johnson for an example, and the iReady Diagnostic, various um, assessments that are being used in traditional school settings, and what I've found from the second year of us using more of a um, I guess structured data method versus now is the growth is outstanding um, the growth from students who came to us below grade level now performing at a higher grade level um, that's data that I welcome anybody to come and see because it speaks for itself and then I think also um, someone mentioned measuring like the family success just hearing the stories from parents um, of what their child is now able to do or their child being more comfortable in school um, that that's the most important data that you need, a kid that wants to go to school, Um, it speaks to, you know, the issue that we have across America with school attendance. Kids want to actually show up. High schoolers want to come to school because they're in a, a space that values, you know, who they are as an individual and, um, supporting them with college, career, entrepreneurship and things of that nature. So I think there's various ways that we can measure the success of all of our programs and, um, I'm sure, I speak for myself and probably everyone else that we welcome anyone to analyze the data.
5: Uh, I, I'm concerned uh, that we've over relied on data that doesn't tell us very much of anything except that, you know, we're comparing kids against kids. And I, uh, my overarching goal is to prove uh, can we do K-12 education, K-12 education in 10 years or nine years? Because we waste so much time in traditional schools that I'm not seeing at times. So our early evidence is showing that uh, we don't have grade levels, but uh, every boy in our school is, is doing work at one or two grade levels ahead. And so we're able to accelerate learning in a way that traditional schools can't because we have a self-paced uh, curriculum and process of learning. And I think attendance and other things like that, we are taking, we did take one standardized test just as a baseline, but I'm not relying on that. And I really care more about qualitative assessments of kids, like uh, development of quality, ability to think critically, reason analytically, communicate clearly in reading and writing, uh, creatively (coughs) solve problems, and self-leadership. And I think parents want to hear a narrative about that.
2: Um, we definitely have keep records. We are Cognia accredited. Uh, so we have internal records of standardized testing, SAT, ACT, Iowa tests. Um, but I think it's going to be a hard (coughs) thing to be able to prove that, um, micro schools and alternative education is successful in the way that we are already reporting it for traditional schools. As you can see from the pattern that they've mentioned all here, um, this type of education, is non-traditional. What is the measurement of non-traditional success? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have that right now because all those standardized tests are very traditional. Mm -hmm. And, um, like Jack was, uh, mentioning, you know, there, if you're doing competency-based education or mastery, or you don't give grades, then you're no longer able to say, well, my, um, my, I had a class that with a 4.0 GPA. You can't even say that anymore. So it would be, um, it would be difficult to be able to say, especially with such a, a huge variety even up here, of how we all run our schools and how every student is, um, is viewed in our schools and how they're, they're using their daily educational activities. How would you put that into a standardized form? It's, it would be difficult to do. But, um, but we do definitely have data um, from a traditional standpoint. But is that our only means? Not at all. We, we do focus a lot on are the families uh, happy with our program? Because if they're not happy, they're going to go somewhere else. And that's, that's a more important uh, indicator, in my opinion.
0: And I don't think there's a lot of evidence that the data focus in public schools is that helpful. So <laughs> maybe having different ways of doing it you know, is, is a good thing. So, any more questions here? Otherwise I'll jump. Go ahead.
9: Hi, thanks. Um, I have two questions. So Jack, you mentioned you had a nine-year-old that came from a fairly advantaged background but couldn't read. Um, so that's a measurement. So I'm sort of surprised, I mean, I would think on things like reading, math, that standardized assessments would be useful uh, across the board. Um, Whether people are happy, whether kids want to come to school, that's all very important. And it's going to make a difference in whether they do come and they continue their education and stuff like that. But certain competencies, I would think, should be measured as a way of showing your own success versus traditional environments. So that's just one thought, since they keep saying the US is falling behind other countries in some of these basic metrics. Second question um, I had was, what role does religion play in either why your schools Mm -hmm. are started or um, why parents choose to uh, have their children attend? And I guess I have a third question, which is, is there enough money? I mean, I know you never can probably have enough but you seem to be able to operate, and you're operating with very small scale, which makes it even more expensive for students sometimes. So those are three questions,
5: sorry. Well, just on, on the student, the nine-year-old student, I forgot to mention when he did take a standardized test, a well-known standardized test, he, st- he scored in the 75th percentile, but still he's unable to, he skipped phonetics. His mother He was homeschooled, so he, n- he never had phonics. He's a reader, but he cannot spell a word without help. Uh, and it's a, it's a curious question I've asked a lot of. You know, we, we think we know a lot about reading. We really don't. We think we know a lot about the science of the mind. We really don't. And, and I think we should stop pretending like we have all the answers in some standardized test. And that's why I think personalized education, one-on-one education we can begin to understand how this kid, this, the, the kid in front of you is learning how they observe, uh, uh, absorb knowledge and how we take them from where they are to where they need to be. So that's
1: Yeah, the, the growth me- measurement is what I find the most important. Um, mm-hmm. When I So in Minnesota, we have a variety of standardized tests that we use. And I use the Stanford achievement test. I give it to the kids paper and pencil because my kids get stressed out with the computer screen and then they just click through and then there's a 0% chance of me having accurate scores. So we do paper and pencil. So I have a nine-year-old, right, taking a test. Well, maybe he has grown, maybe he came into me at the six-year-old level and this year, it's been one year, he's now reading at an eight-year-old level. If it's a test for a nine year old he's not going to perform at a nine year old standard, and therefore he's not meeting the standard, but all of the growth that we were able to, which is why I use the other program that we are able to track and show that no, he is learning. it's just a different right. yeah yeah right.
4: well, I want to to say as well one of the problems with the standardized testing uh in the school systems is that students will get modifications if they have learning difficulties but does that mean that that student shouldn't learn to work past those learning dif- difficulties? I have a student with dyslexia who, it's a struggle, but we're working to get him to be able to read on his own because he he loves information. He loves getting new information. But, you know, not being able to read a text when it's put in front of him is a barrier. It limits him from doing different things that other kids around him can do. So he wants to be able to read, um, In the school, though, he'd probably test all right because of comprehension, because it's gonna have the reading, the test to him, uh, other modifications. So that test data, he might look like he's doing okay in the public schools, but where in the micro school, I'm working with him as that individual student looking at what it is specifically he needs and trying to meet those specific needs. He might not look as like he's doing as well compared to his peers, but I can see when the growth is happening. Um, I mean, it's. I think in general, it's true of teachers. We have a better feel for our students uh, than a test is ever going to be able to show. A lot of that can't be put, put out in a standardized method. Um, and it, it, a lot of it does come back to growth and seeing that growth. But even without standardized tests, I know what math skills my students are struggling with. I know what reading skills my students are struggling with. Um, I know what, you know, where they're gaps in their, their knowledge of history or science and it's different for each kid and it's not something that's going to be captured and so I feel like I know there's going to be some pushback uh, in the opening up of education to micro schools because it's so hard to standardize uh, assessment and we want we want these hard fast numbers, we want these labels and we want to be able to say the student's an A student, the student's a B student but I want to be able to say this is this student, this is this individual. And that's because that's what parents see. They see their kid mm-hmm. and they are, parents are starting to realize they want their students to be in a situation where their student is seen as their student, as this individual, not as the A student, the B student, the kid that's always getting in trouble um, just because they need to get out of their seat. Uh, and in, in the smaller school setting, in the micro schools, we're able to really see our students where we're able to then personalize that growth and I'm not sure what's going to be the key to show that that's happening, what's going to you know, appease those that are, are going to be the ones funding the schools and making it possible for this to continue to grow. But I think that there are a lot of caring individuals out there that are going to be able to provide a much better opportunity to students than they would get if we are in the current system of public education where it's all about these hard and fast labels.
3: And I'll just quickly add in, um, when we think about standardized testing in the traditional school system, students are tested at the end of the school year. How does that make sense, right? So we're teaching them all of these standards throughout the year, and then we want to see what they're able to do with them in this one model at the end of the year. Depending on your school, what you do with that data looks different. What we do at our school is we give that standardized assessment before you walk into our classrooms. Because now we can see what you know and what you don't know. And each one of our students get an individualized learning plan. So very similar to what an IEP should be in America, we actually create our own for each student. And that allows us to teach skills and competency-based learning to that learner's needs, according to that assessment. So throughout the year, we're looking for growth, as you mentioned. We're looking for growth. We're looking to see how you are able to tackle that skill in various forms and various measures, not just in one form in a standardized assessment. And that data also empowers our teachers to say, okay, what should learning look like this year because of what these kids are able to do? Or what should learning not look like because of what they can't do? We take, um, again, a non traditional approach to education. So we're not looking for what you can't do, we're looking for what you can do, and we leverage that to then throw in the skills that we feel you need to use to improve. So um, until we kind of decide what our our view um, in America of standardized assessment is going to be for education, I feel like we won't have an answer to your question. So
0: Jack, 10 seconds, you look like you had something else. you wanted I to say. just,
5: <laughs> sorry we didn't get the faith part oh. of it. I'll just say it has made all the difference for us as a school community. And we're open to, to children of all faiths, but to, to just to have that uh, as a centering for our values and what we stand for, has made all the difference for me personally and I think for our families.
0: So thank you everyone for joining us online and everyone who came in person. If you have any questions and wanna reach out to any of the panelists, feel free to email me uh, through our website, cato.org, and I'll be happy to connect you with them. And for those of us who are here, please join us for lunch.
5: Thank you.